Thank you for joining me on this podcast about new ways of delivering aid more effectively. You said something about aid. Can you share that with me again? I remember this conversation very vividly. I think, Rowena, you and I hopped on a call before this just to meet each other for the first time. And I think the thing that I said to you, maybe perhaps even verbatim, was thank you so much for inviting me on the show. I've listened to some of the shows. They're really excellent. When I look at my career, though, I don't think I've ever worked in aid. That was definitely an oh shit moment on my part. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back, everybody. Sorry for the long silence. As I mentioned, I was on the road, but I'm going to make up for all of it with this new season that we have ahead of us. We're going to venture into the scary world of investors and donors in digital health. Basically, the guys that write the checks. We kick off this season with Rebecca Disler. She's a strategist for AI, data, and digital health, all three of them, with the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation, a forward-thinking foundation committed to bridging the frontiers of artificial intelligence, data science, and social impact. I don't even know foundations could do that kind of thing. Let me explain why Rebecca is such a fascinating individual. One, she got her start as a ballet dancer, which I'm pretty sure I've never met anyone else in digital health that started out as a ballet dancer. Two, She was there for the expansion of Grand Challenges into Africa and China. For those of you who don't know, Grand Challenges was a breath of fresh air in what was otherwise a pretty stale funding environment for innovations in aid. It was introduced at a time when even to get the smallest financing, you needed to have a 20-page monitoring and evaluation program, a track record of success. And basically what it said was, hey, let's take truly game-changing ideas, present it, in a page or three pages. And if it sounds promising, we'll give you a little bit of money to try out this thing, which could be super risky, but if it works, it could change everything. Anyways, Rebecca was there for that. After that, she moved into an industry-leading digital identity startup, where she found herself in the unpleasant position of trying to get aid funding to unlock the public health potential of this technology. And so she experienced firsthand what it was like to win public funds. And then, of course, today, working at the McGovern Foundation with the track record that she has, trying to figure out how do they fill the gaps in innovation funding. Stick around for the end when she talks about some of the things that have really stood out to her from organizations that they funded, some examples of the kinds of things they're most interested in seeing. Just before we dive in today, a quick word from our sponsor, idealist.org. I actually use this website myself when I was first trying to break into the nonprofit space. It happens to be the number one job board for the social impact sector. Whether you're hiring for a nonprofit, a business with a socially responsible position, or a company with a social mission, Idealist is the best way to reach an engaged community of millions, all looking to make the world a better place. You can sign up to start posting jobs today by going to idealist.org aid to get a credit for one free 30-day job listing. I mean, it's free. Give it a shot. Anyways, on to our show. My first question for Rebecca was, as you were growing up, how did you first find out that you were interested in public health? It's a really interesting question, and I don't know how many folks on uh, your podcast can say this, but for me, it started at the ballet bar. Ha! What? (laughs) Really? What? (laughs) So I grew up in New York City. And for the first, let's say, 18 years of my life, my focus was ballet. That's a long time. 
It's a long time. I trained as a ballet dancer. I did children's roles with New York City Ballet, if you're familiar wow. with, with the big Nutcracker performance here. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah, it was. And it was really fun. And I loved ballet. I was joking that I, I counted this up in my lifetime. And I think over the course of my life, I've performed in over a hundred different performances of Nutcracker. Whoa. Which is insane. But I, I bring it up because I think as a ballet dancer, right, where that was my focus for so long, there's so many things you learn about discipline and creativity and certainly where uh, things about perfectionism. But I will say like, you know, as a ballet dancer, one of the things that was really front and center for me was nutrition. I spent a lot of time thinking about nutrition and thinking about nutrition from a very individual perspective. And so that was something that I always carried with me, was always really interested in nutrition and nutritional science. I mean, you have to be in that profession. Those ballet dancers are tidy. <laughs> <laughs> and you're thinking, about, right, you're thinking about how do I, you know, what are the choices that I as an individual can make to optimize my nutrition and get me performing to the highest levels? But at the same time, I knew that I wasn't going to be a ballet dancer when I grew up. I trained with folks who went on to become professional dancers who are incredible at what they do. I knew that wasn't going to be what I wanted to do. And so kind of from an early age, I had made the choice that even though I was training alongside folks who were going to go and become professional dancers, I wanted to go to college and I wanted to get college education and liberal arts education. Now, I didn't know what I wanted to study, but I did know that I wanted to go to college. And so I. I ended up at, at Yale University. And while I was there, I, I, because I was really interested in nutrition, I was still sort of exploring what I wanted to do. I enrolled in this course called the Psychology, Biology, and Politics of Food that was all about the systems that, that kind of lead to, to sort of like changes in nutrition. And it was, I still remember sitting in the auditorium in this first class. And by the way, this was supposed to be a quote unquote gut class. This is supposed to be the class that <laughs> you don't have to do all the work and you don't have to do all the reading. And, you know, it's supposed to be the easy class. And I remember <laughs> sitting at these lectures being absolutely mesmerized and just feeling my world expand, right? Because I went from understanding nutrition as this very individual choice to understanding it as the product of human psychology and nudges and how we respond in behavioral psychology the product of mm. policy, right? And how food subsidies, for example, impact the ingredients and, and choices that go into food and food production and the biology stuff. And so I just, I often say that nutrition became my backdoor to public health because of that connection. And particularly the connection around global health really came from that as part of this. And one of the things that we were talking about quite deeply in the course and I ended up doing my senior thesis on this topic was around the dual burden of non-communicable diseases and malnutrition, in, uh, particularly in low resource contexts. And this is a topic that we still don't, I think, talk enough about as a sector, but really looking at the interplay of what happens when you have rising obesity and non-communicable diseases, when you still have persistent malnutrition in a population. What are the policies that kind of lead to that outcome? What is the, the, the actual biology kind of within people, the family dynamics? And so there's so much uh, within there. And so that's what really kind of cracked the nut on global public health was thinking about that from, from a systems-based approach. After she graduated from university, Rebecca was able to cobble together a pretty fascinating mix of experiences in the global health space. She went to Ghana to work on the National Mental Health Bill there and spent some time in Fiji with the World Health Organization on a health-promoting schools program. She got her master's of public health back at Yale in 2013. And then, after a brief stint on the Clinton Global Initiative, she joined the organization 
which would connect her to the Gates Grand Challenges initiative and allow her to play a key role in expanding that program to geographies like China and Africa. So after my MPH, I joined Global Health Strategies. It's Global Health Communications and Advocacy Consulting Firm. Mm-hmm. And they work on a range of issues. So this was, a, it was a really, it was also sort of a really good way to kind of learn about different topics in, in global health. But something that was really unique about the work that I did at GHS and the role that I played was I spent, of the almost four years that I spent there, I spent most of it working quite closely with the Gates Foundation's Grand Challenges team. Interesting. And I think that's a program that a lot of our listeners know well, because I feel like that's yeah. been very catalytic in the innovations and public health Absolutely. space. It's just like a, a new way of funding that wasn't just like, here's the program, here's the trainings you're going to run, here's the milestones you're going to hit. It's like, let's try to do something. How did working on that program influence your thinking about that space and that work? Absolutely. It was really formative. Like if you think about the tagline of Grand Challenges, and I think a lot of folks who, as you shared, listen to this podcast know this program quite well. But that tagline, you know, the focus of it is, is that innovation can come from anywhere. And I think something that Grand Challenges has always really been at the forefront of is not only can innovation come from anywhere, but it's in particularly important when it comes from those who sit closest to the health challenges. And so how do we think about how we resource innovators, create ecosystems of innovation? So not just philanthropic funding, right, which is being provided by the Gates Foundation and its constellation of partners around the Grand Challenges initiatives. But how do we convince governments to invest in their own innovators and build ecosystems of scientists and technologists and public health leaders who do sit close to the challenges? I think there's a lot of really good and important conversations around localization right now. And I do think Grand Challenges was kind of at the forefront of this in thinking about where and how they fund and the network of innovators that they've built over Gosh, I mean, what is that? 15 plus years of, of, of operating. <laughs> and so one of the things that was really, one of the, the my roles sort of in, in working with the Gates Foundation Grand Challenges team was really around helping them set up some of those funding partnerships and coordinating the annual Grand Challenges meeting. And so the kind of, a couple oh, of fun, right. So it was really fun. And a couple of really formative things around this were, I helped launch Grand Challenges China huh. in Beijing. I helped launch wow. Grand Challenges Africa. And so got to sit really closely with the teams who were, and again, I think coming, to, coming back to that, the early work around diplomacy and negotiation and partnership and policymaking, right, around how do you, you're putting together a program in which you have a foundation that's putting in a certain amount of capital. You're looking at what is the long-term co-funding opportunity with governments. You're looking at who are the right sets of, of folks to be on a scientific advisory committee and provide input. Mm-hmm. You know, what does this ecosystem look like and how do we how do we fund? And again, not about taking ideas from elsewhere and exporting them out, but really like funding the innovation that is happening on the ground in country. And so I really loved that work. And, and with the Grand Challenges meetings, one of the things I used to do is help coordinate different meetings between partners, almost like a global health matchmaking, if you will. <laughs> like Tinder for global health. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I do what I, there's, we're talking about technology. I wonder if there's any number of other technical advancements that have been made since the work that we were doing on Excel spreadsheets for this. <laughs> the core of it, right, was really thinking around, so help launch Grand Challenges China, help launch Grand Challenges Africa, Right. was thinking about where and how we build this ecosystem. And something that I spent a lot of time doing and supporting the Grand Challenges team on was this kind of matchmaking between innovators, funders, technologists. And I do remember very vividly helping facilitate those meetings 
And then those organizations would have those meetings with their own agendas. And I remember this moment of, of, you know, I was still working at Global Health Strategies and I was looking at all of this incredible conversation around me, but I didn't have a seat at the table. Like I wasn't sort of in the room and working on those agendas. And that was a real moment for me where I realized like that as much as I, and I really did love working with the Grand Challenges team and kind of facilitating that process. I was really itching to be, to quote Hamilton, if you will, right? To be in the room where it happens. Yes, Hamilton. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Great musical. Everyone should watch it. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I have that very, like, it was like that very visceral reaction to it. And so that was sort of what prompted me to kind of explore. Would it be to be an implementer, particularly to look at early stage innovative technologies? And so it was right around that time that I had sort of kind of had this realization was sort of realizing that was the kind of, I wanted to roll up my sleeves and and really dig into it, that I ended up being recruited for a new role at a AI digital identity startup that was Uh pre-series A, venture-backed, coming out of stealth mode, working both in financial services and starting to think about digital ID in the health space. Wow. Very different. Such a change for you. Yeah. Yeah, wow. absolutely. What was that like? Definitely a change. I mean, my first few, <laughs> you know, when I, I mean, it, it was, I mean, my first, I, at the time, so I had never worked directly with an AI research or an engineering team. And I just spent my first few weeks on the job, really just shadowing them and learning from them and understanding the day in and day out of their work. And I really valued that experience of being able to sit with truly some of the leading AI researchers and particularly of the approaches that we were looking at. And I'll, I'll step back and share that the company itself, so it was building digital ID solutions, I share, looking at financial services, but also starting to look at immunization and health programs. And so I was tasked with really coming in and building that portfolio from the ground up. Just for context, the potential applications for digital ID, one that works, one that is cross-cutting across your health records, across the different health applications, it's incredibly powerful. You know, there's like the possibility of truly integrated care that kind of a solution can unlock. So it's, it's a very compelling prospect. I can see why you signed up for it. Absolutely. And I, this patient ID challenge, particularly, and we were looking at contexts in which you have 1 billion people worldwide that don't have formal ID, the challenges of being able to create a digital ID and sort of link who we are in the physical world to that digital record was really compelling. And was a really and was a really interesting application of artificial intelligence because we're using that sort of to create the digital ID itself. And so, like as you said, like it's, it's this really persistent, really big problem in healthcare and health programs around the world. And so, over three years, was working both with our AI research team, they were based in New York, and with partners in Bangladesh, Cambodia, and Mozambique. And there were, when I think back on my my time at the company, there were sort of like three things that really. I think really like I took with me as I kind of stepped into this next phase of my career. I think the first was, and, and so many folks, I think come on this, this podcast, or at least hope come on this podcast and talk about the importance of building with communities and building directly with folks who will use and engage this technology. I mean, I used to, I used to lead the trainings that we did with community health workers and I would sit with them and I would follow them and I would watch their workflows and understand just things around how they held their mobile device, for example, right. And how they interacted with, with technology. And we would use, and then would, translate those observations back to our teams who would make not just design choices, right, but choices around the models that we would use. And I think being able to understand those technical choices, right, the the technical choices we made on models had downstream implications for how the technology got used, but be also because of the way in which we train AI models, how the technology gets used also impacts how the model is trained. 
And so it's this reinforcing kind of collaborative effort that I really got this hands-on experience kind of working with this team and building this technology from the ground up. And so that was being able to translate across community use of practice, right? To be able to translate the needs of a community health worker in rural Bangladesh to an AI researcher who's like laser focused on a very particular research question within our team. What a great experience. Yeah. And any number of tension points that really arise there. I think the second thing that I was really reflecting on was this notion that a little bit, right? Innovation needs to be deployed in and supported by an ecosystem, right? Like the whole concept of digital ID, right? The potential for impact of digital ID is that it can link you to, let's say, a longitudinal health record. And having that record, having that data leads to some sort of differentiated decision that leads to a better health outcome, right? That's not the digital ID itself. It's how it enables and exists in this larger ecosystem. And there were so many opportunities where, or so much work where I had seen this potential of digital ID, but you're talking about paper-based systems, or you're talking about areas of intermittent connectivity. And I do think that in general, we as a, as a sector haven't always made those foundational investments or those investments in these kind of digital foundations. And that makes it really hard to realize the impact of innovative technology like AI. Yeah. So that was something that I learned, I think, kind of hands-on first person. And then the third, and I was I really was starting to think about this as I kind of stepped in, back into, or I guess really toward this being more role of a funder, was realizing that how work is funded leads to a different outcome. And I think something that I was reflecting on in my time at a VC-backed organization was learning more about the VC or the venture capital ecosystem, right? You have mm-hmm. VCs that fund, certainly based on return on investment, but they fund based on the idea and the team and the problem you're trying to solve and the competitive advantage that you have. And they fund the promise that all of those factors are going to come together and form something meaningful and, and yes, of course, hopefully profitable. And in global health, that's not really sort of how we, we position our funding, right? We, and it's not just about removing the profit-driven lens. It's about this field that as a sector, we've traditionally funded projects and programs and implementation. And as a result, I think innovators and particularly folks who are building digital technology for years have had to look for the early stage R&D de-risking type funding like you're seeing coming out of Grand Challenges or implementation and project funding and then trying to build in the capacity to do that kind of digital product development R&D within an implementation framework. And so I really felt that struggle. I mean, we were, there were, work we were doing with UNICEF and Gavi and the World Bank and and really trying to convince them to come to the table earlier in a product development cycle. And we all really felt the why behind it and like why we needed to do this, but it was really hard to put into practice. I mean, the way that the whole institution is structured kind of fights against that current because the institutions were built at a time before we had product managers, before we had technology products or software products. So it's It's a real uphill battle, but it's a battle that's definitely worth fighting. Rebecca, can I ask why you left that digital identity startup? During the pandemic, well, I'll say this, both my husband and I parted ways from our jobs within a four-week period. Whoa. So it was kind of unexpected and unplanned, but it was a real time of transition for us. And I think we were both really exploring what it is we wanted to do, how we wanted to show up in the world, the kind of work we wanted to do. And I'll share, we were, we were in a really privileged position around this. We, within that four-week period, 
separated from our jobs, broke the lease on our apartment, put our things into storage, Whoa. packed up our car and lived what ended up being basically essentially nomadic for two years and kind of wow. going from place to place with what fits into our car. We were, we took on consulting projects. I started to explore working with with nonprofits, always at that intersection of technology and global health. But I was working with nonprofits. We were doing volunteer work. And again, I say this, it was you know, a real position of privilege to be able to do that. But it was a really meaningful experience because it was part of the consulting work that I did that actually led me to connect with Villa Starr, who's the president of the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation. When I was doing some consulting on digital ID, I ended up moderating him on a panel discussion right after he stepped into this role, uh, the new role of being president of the foundation. And for someone who, you and I personally was having all sorts of conversations or or conversations in my head with myself (laughs) around how do you show up and do this work? What does it take to ensure that the most innovative technology in the world isn't just designed for those who live in high income settings or to sort of marginally improve or extend life, but to really solve some of our greatest challenges and to really ensure that it works for as many people as it can. And to kind of fundamentally change, I think particularly in the pandemic, right? Like fundamentally change where and how and why we access healthcare. And so to to connect with someone who was thinking so deeply around the ethics of AI and the role of technology in this space, but also the role of civil society, nonprofits, how do we come together? How do we build collaborative ecosystems to really advance more inclusive and equitable technology. It was really extraordinary. And that's what led to a series of conversations that ultimately led to me joining the foundation just about 15, 16 months ago. All right. So what exactly does the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation do? Our foundation broadly focuses on advancing artificial intelligence and data science for public good and social impact. My role as a strategist, particularly around health, is to help the organization understand the global digital health ecosystem and use that to craft hypotheses about where we can add value and inform strategic partnership and and ultimately grant making. But it is really grounded in this hypothesis-driven strategy work. And this is where all of the threads throughout my career, I think, really start to come together, right? Where Hmm. this is not about us imposing an agenda on our grant partners. We actually do a lot of work to make, I mean, even down to our grant applications and the way in which we tried to make those light touch and sort of, and again, meet partners where they are, but to think really deeply around what are the things that don't get funded, but if we're funded, could have an outsized impact on the ecosystem. And I think at health, there's been a real, particularly at our organization, there's been sort of a real grounding and an understanding that if we want to see artificial intelligence and more advanced analytics have the impact we know it can have in health, we actually have to invest in underlying enablers of a healthy digital health ecosystem. Things that we don't invest in, things like standards and interoperability, the notion that things around decision-making, like how do we help folks make decisions with or about AI and data? And that's policy makers down to community health workers, right? How do we help support building cultures of data use that are not tied to a specific product or platform, but are that thinking about data and digital skills as core components of a health workforce skill set? Wow. And then when we have these kind of underlying enablers, then we can think about that kind of innovation funding, right? The things that we can do to seed and support products and platforms that can be built on top of these foundational pillars. And so that's been a really interesting and and I hope kind of honest exploration of this space. And 
I think it does weave together some of these things. We think about the folks who are leading this work for their communities within their communities and, and how we can reach them. We think about where and how we can catalyze other funders in this space, right? We think about and sort of bring that grand challenges approach. We think about mm-hmm. where and how we bring together whether it was public resources, private resources, enterprise resources to and bring them together in, in collaborative ecosystems. Or how do we build collaborative ecosystems of private sector partners, civil society, and nonprofits and bringing their expertise to the table in service of government-led innovation or, or government and public health systems? And so it does start to weave together these different areas of my career. But I, I continue to refer to our strategic pillars as learning areas because it is this commitment to ongoing learning and to understanding that this space is dynamic, that it's changing, and that we need to be, yes, strategic with our resources, but also flexible and honest about where and how we, we can deploy capital for impact. Now, a brief intermission and a spoiler alert. At the end of all of our interviews, we do a series of rapid fire questions. One of those questions is, can you name someone who has inspired or guided your work? Stay tuned for the end of this conversation when Rebecca names Patty Michelle. Patty Michelle is a pillar of the global digital health community, and she's just published a book, but not the kind of book you would expect. It's a book about a bunch of feisty middle school kids who discover something is making their community sick. To unravel the mystery, they team up with public health activists to go save the world. It's a great story. And yeah, by the way, it might also make science and technology a little more fun for your kids. Highly recommend it. You can find out all about it at patriciamichelle.com. That's M-E-C-H-A-E-L.com. Now, back to our regular show. What I find really interesting about the arc that you've covered is that you've come from a space where you've worked with individual major donors through Gates Grand Challenges. You've engaged extensively with multilateral donors. Now you're at a private foundation. And that, I would think, lends itself towards a certain flexibility or a certain ability to tackle the underserved areas in funding, such as what you've mentioned. What are some of the things that, under your work within the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation, you think you're doing better than others in this industry? What are some of the things in which you're able to look at those underserved areas, which maybe aren't sexy enough or aren't traditional enough for other donors or funders in the digital health space? It's an interesting question because I... I think something that I've been really mindful of is stepping into the space as a relatively new global digital health donor, right? So within global digital health, there are sets of of actors and folks who have, and I just want to name that, there are folks who have been investing and funding this work for decades. I view our work not so much about what are things that we're doing better, but what are the things that we're doing to listen really deeply and start to perhaps act in a little bit of a different way. And my hope is that it does lead to better, better outcomes, but a lot of it is trying to understand what gets funded, what doesn't, what hasn't been funded, where is it hard for institutional donors to make funding decisions, and where can we deploy flexible capital? And so for us, it's, it's around things like, as an example, one of our grant partners, Ona, has been on this broader journey to re-architect the open source platform they've developed, OpenSRP, to be fire native. FIRE, F-H-I-R, stands for Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource. And it's also just a cool acronym. FIRE is the latest incarnation of standards coming out of HL7. 
the international body that has come up with some of the most widely adopted healthcare standards. FHIR is widely considered to be the future of how healthcare data can be shared between different systems. A lot of the work that they're doing is thinking about how can we support low and middle income countries or low resource communities and health systems to adopt this standard to make it easier to facilitate data, let's say, between the community health levels and primary clinics, for example. And if you want to learn more about ODA, check out the interview we did with their CEO and founder, Matt Berg, right here on Aid Evolved. And so it's work like this where it's, it can be a bit risky. It's, you know, you're, you're kind of seeding some interesting work around the adoption of standards, but you're doing so with this eye toward, well, what does this actually mean in terms of healthcare delivery? What does it mean to be able to exchange, kind of, if you will, turn on the taps of data exchange between different levels of the health system? And what does it mean to focus not so much on a specific product or a specific platform, but about an underlying data standard in which multiple products or multiple platforms can be built around? And what does that mean in terms of seeding an ecosystem? And so it's, we're still early in that exploration, but it's that kind of exploratory work that I think is really interesting and compelling and helps us think about other kinds of models and partnerships that we can bring to the space. So that's one example. Another example is the work that Dtree does. So Dtree is, as I think you've, you've spoken with the, the Dtree folks on this very podcast, they've been working in community health, maternal health, public health in Zanzibar. And as part of this, have helped build a really impressive digital community health system. And there's all sorts of things that they are starting to look at in terms of risk stratification and in introducing more advanced analytics to improve healthcare delivery, right? So not just kind of the M&E of the program, but actually sort of changing where and how care is delivered. And I think something that we've been working on them and the work that we supported that they're really leading on was really around this recognition that they came to as well, where they're like, if we really want this work to succeed and be government owned and led, one of the things that's really missing is a data governance framework and thinking about how this data is governed, how, what are the things that we can do to both make this data available to researchers to develop those kind of approaches, but also ensure that the benefits that are developed are back to the community from whose data that was generated. And because of their positioning in the, organi- in the country, can really think deeply and be a partner to the Ministry of Health around this. And so that's the, some of the work in it. And again, that's, it's a great example of the, re- the funding that we provided them is around that kind of flexible funding of like, what do we need to do to support the development of that framework and to do it through that lens of, of centering the community and centering the community needs. And so being able to support you know, a civil society, a nonprofit organization that has that strong partnership. But again, that's not implementation funding, right? That's something a little bit different. And I think that's what's really exciting to me about this work is how can we deploy strategic capital in service of initiatives and work that, that we think can really have an outsized impact on the space itself? Of course, you can't have a conversation with someone like Rebecca working at an organization like the McGovern Foundation without talking about ethical AI. How do they think about ethical AI? What is their approach to building intelligent systems that will improve healthcare access by all. I think something that you'll often hear us talk about as a foundation, I'll kind of bring it to the, the forefront here is, I think we, there's a lot of really, really important conversations about what responsible and ethical artificial intelligence looks like and how do we 
build that and design that. And I think those are important conversations. But I think one of the things that, or one of our positionings as an organization is really more around, well, what does a responsible and ethical society look like with AI and with data? I think about that statement a lot in our work, right? In which we're thinking not just about the tool, because it's a tool, thinking about the ecosystem that it's deployed in and the where and the how. And I think that's where we get to these, both the sort of, let's say, sort of more technical focus on like, what are the things that we just need to do to make these systems work better and make them more useful for achieving health goals today? But it's also why I think we think really deeply about the people component. Who are the people who are making decisions, whether about these tools? How can we support them in making good decisions? And again, not superimposing an agenda and saying, in order to receive our funding, you must use this technology, but to say, what are the things that we can do to support you in your decision-making process to make the decisions that make sense for your country, for your program, for your community, for your patient? And again, thinking about the work that I've done to help build innovative technology, often, you know, the technology can be really, really good. I have seen really, really good, like technical technology, right? (laughs) But it falls down when it's introduced into an ecosystem that doesn't know how to support it and doesn't know how to support it or implement it or maintain it or sustain it. And so being able to take a step back and think about the really easy problem, I guess that's been the other theme of the career is when we think about these things, we (laughs) go for the the easiest part of the problem to solve. But that's, I think when we think about, you know, things around equity and inclusion, like that's where we have to go if we want to do it well and if we want to do it so that it's sustained over time. Remember that part at the beginning of this conversation where I asked Rebecca to join me on this podcast, Aid Evolved? And she said, I don't think I've ever worked in aid. I had to ask her, what do you mean by that? For me personally, the way that I've approached my career, and I think this this perhaps goes back to some of how I got into this, which came from this individual exploration of nutrition to understanding the broader, or to recognizing that there was a broader system, to wanting to solve system level challenges. I've never considered any of the work I've done aid. It has not been about me providing aid to someone else or to kind of come in and set an agenda. And I think for better or for worse, all of the work I've done has been around facilitation and partnership and collaboration and diplomacy and where and how can I use the resources that I have in hand to support you in doing your work and solving the challenges that you sit closest to. What happens now? What are you excited about that's coming up with you or the foundation? Yeah. So something I'm I'm really excited about is that at the Clinton Global Initiative, which was convened for the first time in several years this September, we made a public commitment to our digital health portfolio of directing at least $10 million toward digital transformation of health systems through 2023. Wow. I'm really excited about it. It's the first time that we're kind of talking more publicly about that financial commitment. I hope that it is a signal of the work that we want to do, not just through 2023. And so something I'm really excited about is sort of one, sort of thinking about where and how we'll be allocating that capital, but also to take it back to the learning areas that we talked about a little bit earlier on the podcast, right? These things around how do we support decision makers? How do we look at the underlying digital infrastructure? And then how do we think about the products and platforms that get built on top of that? And to be able to really deepen our exploration with partners, both existing and new, to continue the exploration around the learning areas that we've talked about, 
over the course of our time today, right? How do we help decision makers make decisions with or about data and AI? How do we invest in underlying infrastructure, the things that don't always get invested in to support these systems? And then, you know, what are the products and platforms that get built on top of that? So that's something that I'm really looking forward to working on, I guess, over these next, the next 16 months of my, my work here. All right. So just to wrap up our show for today, we're going to dive into a few rapid fire questions. First question for you, Rebecca, is about differentiators. As someone who's worked with many different kinds of digital health ventures, what is one differentiator, in your personal opinion, that sets the best innovators apart from the rest? And even if you want to talk about like a specific example of, of one venture that you were like, these guys are just yeah. thinking about it differently than everyone else. Oh, this is such a great question. And I, I'll say as one who was an implementer for most of my career and now is sitting kind of more on the funding side, I think the piece that comes or the, the value that comes through the most is trust. There's a lot of folks who have really great ideas, who are visionary in what they put forward and perhaps can be good operators. But it really does comes down to, can I trust you? Can I trust your team? Can I trust that when things go wrong, you'll come to us with humility and you'll come to us and say, this is what we're facing, the challenges we're facing. Here's how we're thinking about approaching it and kind of invite us into that conversation. I come back to that. It's that trust. It's that transparency. It's integrity. And it's how do we balance the confidence and commitment to the work that I think innovators and entrepreneurs really embody and, and drive with that humility. Nice. That makes so much sense. Now, aid, a topic we've discussed before, maybe a little controversial, yes. but on the topic of aid, what guidance would you give to traditional aid actors or philanthropists to better support innovations that fight poverty? I'll harken back, I think, to that grand challenges of innovation comes from anywhere, but particularly those who sit closest to the challenges at hand. That's something that I've learned working with the grand challenges team. I continue to carry with me throughout my career. I think the other piece is that it is really tempting to fund innovation. It is tempting to fund mm. cutting edge mm -hmm. technology. It is tempting to think about where and how can I take a particular approach and apply that to this context. And I think we all need to recognize that it's not just about funding the innovation itself. It's about the things around it that are going to really lead to success. And I think we're seeing a shift with this, particularly in digital health and toward enterprise planning approaches and national digital health strategies. And I think we talked a little bit earlier around sort of a a focus on localization. But what this comes to is that innovation does really need an ecosystem for which it can flourish. And so being able to work with one another and figure out how do we coordinate investments in, let's say, foundational infrastructure, and how do we think about how we introduce and catalyze and accelerate innovation within that ecosystem. That's really refreshing to hear, particularly for someone who's working at an innovation-focused, forward-thinking <laughs> foundation such as the one that you're working at. So it's great to have those encouragements from you. On the advice front, if you could take a step mm. back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Ooh, gosh. I mean, it, it, it's advice to my younger self. And I have to tell you, it's advice to myself today. <laughs> I think something I, I, I was reflecting on this, it's okay to say no. I think particularly as, you know, and I'll, I'll speak, you know, as a woman, as a self-described high achiever, right? We want to say, yes, we want to take on more projects, more work. We want to do the most that we can to advance the project, to advance our work, to have the greatest impact that we can. And I think learning how to say no and learning when to say no 
are things that I would reflect on and sort of build a strong base. And it's something that I'm continuing to work on today. Words of wisdom, for sure. Still trying to work on that. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to offer a shout out to someone who has inspired or guided your work? Yeah. Can I give two? Sure. There's two that jumped to mind. This one time. This one time. There's two. And I've met, there are two different women who I've met at kind of two different points in my career. One is Patty Michelle at Health Enabled, who I've gotten to know through the work that we're doing in partnership and, and the foundation. She's someone who has worked in M Health and in the digital health space and has built a, built a real career and expertise in that space. And I, I've loved watching her evolve with the space and kind of stay ahead of what's coming, what we need to get ahead of, and to watch her connect different partners, engage on different strategy conversations. I just think she does that. She and her team do really excellent work. She's awesome. She's awesome. Full stop. <laughs> but I, I've really enjoyed getting to know her through the work that we're doing at the foundation. And the second is Nina Schwabe. She's a principal at Spark Street Advisor. She's worked with USAID and UNICEF and Gavi. And one of the things that I deeply appreciate about Nina is, first of all, every conversation I have with her, I walk away smarter and asking more questions. I love the way that she asks questions around public health. And she's someone who has worked on public health policy, on immunization, on AI and health. And I appreciate that no matter what she does, she centers the public health science within her work. And so whether you're talking about technology, whether you're talking about innovation, whether you're talking about policy, I trust that she's someone who kind of holds the science close and and makes sure that's front and center. And so I I admire the way in which she, when would she brings that forward and and asks questions and, and the conversations I've had with her throughout the many years that I've known her. Sounds like I need to get her on the pod, clearly. (laughs) Oh, yes. She would be a fun one. She'd be a really excellent one. On the reading front, what is one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in this industry? I feel like everyone on your podcast must say DevX because they are... Not as many as you would think. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Well, well, so I was going to say, I think from an industry perspective, DevX is certainly... That is a newsletter that I read every day. I think Catherine Cheney's coverage in particular and the intersection of technology, innovation, and health is really good. What I was going to offer, though, is that if there are folks who are interested in technology more broadly, and this is something that I think is really critical, right? How do we like step outside of our box and kind of learn about the things that are happening outside of our space? Mm -hmm. The other newsletter that I read every day is the download from MIT Technology Review. Oh, nice. And I, I really appreciate its sort of different themes. They do some really good long form journalism around technology and society. They've also kind of sprinkled in some of the more current events, which is a really good way to sort of step outside of the health and development space and sort of understand what's coming in the pipeline from a technology perspective. And it kind of gets the wheels turning on where and how does this have relevance in the work that we do day in and day out. Nice. That sounds super fun. And I like how you called it something from the two different industries, which because there's at least two that are meeting up in (laughs) the space. So last question, Rebecca, for you today. And this one's just for fun. Yes. If you could recommend a book, a blog, or a podcast that you've enjoyed personally. Yes. So here's another one that I don't know if this is a first for the podcast. I'd like to recommend one that is coming out next year. Oh, interesting. So it's it's not out yet. I'm intrigued. But I wanted to put it, I wanted to put it on everyone's radar. It's called Next, The Secrets and Science of Great Transformation. It's written by this powerhouse media leader, Joanne Littman. She was the first woman to be the managing deputy editor at the Wall Street Journal. She was chief content officer at Gannett and USA, an editor-in-chief at USA Today. And in full disclosure, she also happens to be my mom. No way! <laughs> no way! Yes. And she's got a lot of accomplishments in her she's life, got a lot clearly. Of she is someone who I deeply <laughs> admire. 
But I will say wow. that the book, so the book was written during the sort of, during the pandemic. And she was observing how many of us, including my husband and I, right, were transitioning and were thinking about what do we do next? Where and how do we show up in the world? What is the kind of work that we want to do? What is meaningful work? And she took the, in some ways, inspired by the experiences that Sam and I were going to. And from that, kind of took a step back and has put together all of this incredible research and case studies around what makes a successful transformation and transition. And her, the case studies and the research she brings is far more interesting than mine and Sam's own story. But I think it's really relevant for all those who might be questioning what does come next and how do I step into my purpose and, and what is, like, how do I get from here to there? Yeah. Some of us never stop asking those questions, but. <laughs> no, and I hope we don't. And I think that's what's exciting about this, right? It's an opportunity to kind of like invite you in on that journey and understand what does that journey look like? And I, I've gotten to read some parts of it. So I think it's out in March, 2023. It sounds like an amazing read. I'm going to pre-order it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Rebecca. For someone who's listening to this and wants to learn more about you or your work, what's the best resource that you would point them to? You can find out more about us at mcgovern.org if you're interested in learning more about the work of the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation. I also encourage folks to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I find that some of the, you know, we're talking about newsletters, but I find that some of the best ways that I learn is from the folks who are directly doing the work. So looking forward to connecting and hearing everyone else's stories. Awesome. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much, Romina. I really love the humility and the thoughtfulness with which Rebecca approaches this work. And she's right. It's not about aid. It's about developing systems and bringing people and resources together so that they can solve their own problems and achieve their own dreams. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to the show. We're going to be running through a whole gamut of donors and investors in the weeks and months ahead. We'll talk to big aid, family foundations, and even the murky world of development finance institutions, venture capital, and private equity. I'll explain all of that further when we get there. And if there's a donor or investor that you'd like to hear on this show, let me know. You can find me on email at rowena at See you in two weeks.